You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 150, General Howe Leaves New York. In July 1777, General Howe remained in New York City after the Continentals and militia had pushed his army out of New Jersey six months earlier. Everyone had expected him to begin to do something by this time. Typically, generals began their campaigns in the spring. Most people expected Howe to capture Philadelphia, the largest city in America and the seat of the Continental Congress. In June, the British had made a couple of feints into northern New Jersey, resulting in the Battle of Short Hills that I talked about back in episode 140. But all the real action this year was happening in upstate New York, as General Burgoyne marched his army through the Hudson Valley. In New York City, General Howe did not make any significant deployments anywhere, not toward Philadelphia, not up the Hudson Valley toward Burgoyne. He left everyone to wonder, what was he waiting for, and where would he go? On July 5th, General Henry Clinton returned to New York from London. Recall that General Clinton had sailed for London months earlier with the intent of resigning his commission. General Howe had refused to make use of him and had him sitting around Rhode Island without sufficient forces to take any offensive actions. When the king refused to accept his resignation, refused to give him an independent command that went to Burgoyne, and ordered him to return to serve as Howe's second-in-command for another year, Clinton did as ordered, but he was not happy about it. The day following his arrival in New York, Clinton met with Howe to discuss what he had planned. Clinton had expected Howe to send a force up the Hudson Valley to support General Burgoyne. When he learned that there was no such plan, the two men argued over that and a range of other things. Clinton accused Howe of badmouthing him to people in London for incompetence in his Rhode Island command. In response, Howe angrily accused Clinton of badmouthing him to people in London for the entire prior year's campaign. The two men went back and forth at each other for hours. It ended up with Clinton announcing that he still wished to resign once this campaign was over. Howe responded that he would be happy to allow him to resign once he returned from Philadelphia. In the meantime, Clinton would be left to command at New York City. Howe would take the bulk of his army away with him, leaving Clinton with a few thousand Hessians and Loyalist militia. Clinton was concerned that it was barely enough to defend New York City from an attack, let alone send any sort of relief force to assist Burgoyne's army. That, however, did not seem to be a concern for General Howe. Another general who had clashed with General Howe was Lieutenant General Philip von Heister, 
the commander of all Hessian auxiliaries in America. Heister had arrived in America a year earlier, when the British were still in New Finland. He had been part of the landing at Staten Island and the subsequent capture of New York City and the surrounding area. Heister and Howe had never really gotten along well. The 70-year-old German general had performed well at the Battle of Long Island, but repeatedly clashed with Howe over issues of command and the use of the Hessian soldiers. Heister thought that Howe mostly used the Hessians as cannon fodder, causing unnecessary casualties among his men. The two generals also butted heads over how much independence the Hessians had over the command of British officers. After the capture of the Hessians at Trenton, Heister and Howe exchanged words and blamed each other over responsibility for the loss. Howe sent word back to London that he could not work with the general and wanted him dismissed. This was a touchy issue, since the British most certainly did not want all of the Hessians to pack up and go home. Dismissing their commander could have caused real problems. Instead, officials in London conferred with the leadership in Hesse. The Landgrave of Hesse Castle soon sent notice that General von Heister was being recalled temporarily for reasons of his health and age. In truth, despite the attempted face-saving, everyone knew he was being blamed for Trenton and being removed from command as a result. Heister boarded a ship for London in late June and eventually made his way back to Hesse Castle. He would die later that same year, a dejected and frustrated man. The new commander of Hessian forces was General Wilhelm von Neiphausen, who had been Heister's second-in-command. Von Neiphausen and much of his Hessian army would join General Howe on the Philadelphia campaign. On July 8th, two days after Howe's meeting with Clinton, General Howe began boarding his army of somewhere between 16,000 and 18,000 soldiers and another roughly 5,000 civilians aboard a fleet of 267 ships commanded by his brother, Admiral Richard Howe. The army disembarked from Staten Island where they had first landed almost exactly one year earlier. Although the army began boarding ships on July 8th, the fleet went nowhere. Soldiers sat aboard ship for days in the sweltering July heat. The temperature, the lack of fresh air or fresh food, and seasickness made the time aboard ship unbearable for the soldiers. A week later, on July 15th, General Howe received word that General Burgoyne had taken Fort Ticonderoga. To Howe, like many others, it seemed like the hardest part of Burgoyne's mission was complete. The Americans were scattering, and Burgoyne should be well on his way to Albany. Confident that Burgoyne would not need his help, Howe continued his preparations to set sail. Two days later, he wrote Burgoyne to congratulate him on his success and to confirm that no one would be marching north to meet him. Howe was confident that Burgoyne could complete his march without assistance. Around this same time, Howe also tried to send a little disinformation to the enemy. He arranged for a letter to be captured by the Continentals discussing his plans to sail for Boston. Howe figured that, if they believed it, the enemy would move far away from both Burgoyne's army and his own. General Washington believed none of it. 
he was still certain that Howe would send a force up the Hudson River to assist Burgoyne. Despite intelligence to the contrary, he did not think Howe was stupid enough to abandon Burgoyne in the wilderness of upstate New York with no support. Finally, on July 20th, after leaving his soldiers aboard ship for nearly two weeks, the fleet began to sail out of New York Harbor. Over the next three days, foul weather and poor winds meant that the fleet went exactly nowhere. By July 23rd, they still had not cleared Sandy Hook, New Jersey. But eventually the fleet made its way slowly out to sea, trying to sail beyond the horizon so no one on land could determine where they were headed. With the British fleet out of sight, the Americans had to figure out where they were going so that Washington could march his army to meet them. Philadelphia remained the best guess for many, although Washington still was not convinced that the fleet was a ruse to get him to march south so that the fleet could return and then sail up the Hudson River virtually unopposed. The famous Culper Spy Ring would not be set up in New York for another year, so intelligence from the city was still sketchy. Washington could not be sure that the intelligence he did receive was genuine or whether it was disinformation from the enemy. The Americans sent scouts to southern New Jersey to keep a lookout for the enemy fleet. If they intended to sail up the Delaware River to Philadelphia, they should be sighted there first. Watchmen set up posts at Little Egg Harbor, which is near modern-day Atlantic City, and also at Cape May in New Jersey. At the time, most of this area was uninhabited except by Indians. The Pine Barrens of southern New Jersey, or West Jersey as it was then known, were a largely impassable swampy forest full of dangerous wildlife and outlaws that made passage both slow and risky. Even so, the teams watching for enemy ships maintained express riders to return to Philadelphia in the event that they sighted the fleet. Because of its remote and largely uninhabited location, Egg Harbor was a known port for smugglers to land goods. This made it a dangerous area for members of either army. In late July, a small, heavily armed British expedition landed on one of the uninhabited barrier islands near Egg Harbor, where what is today Ocean City, New Jersey. A couple of the British sailors took the opportunity to desert and found the Americans. Alerted to the local landing, local New Jersey militia captured the remainder of the landing party for interrogation. It turned out the party was from the HMS Roebuck. They had landed in search of rum smugglers. The Roebuck was not part of the fleet, but rather an independent Navy ship that had been assigned to the mouth of the Delaware River for many months. The squad did not send any express riders. However, rumors about the incident popped up in a Philadelphia tavern the following day. General Thomas Mifflin wrote to Washington that he heard a rumor that 70 ships had been spotted off Egg Harbor, headed for Cape May. The rumor then metastasized to spread that the British fleet had already entered Delaware Bay. Washington took the rumor seriously, but waited for further confirmation. He wrote back to Mifflin that it was still possible the British wanted to be seen there. Then they would turn around and head back up to New York to sail up the Hudson River. By this time, Washington had moved his army to Flemington, New Jersey, 
about 60 miles from Philadelphia. From there, he could still move north or south as needed. Several days later, on July 30th, the Americans at Cape May did spot part of the fleet and sent their express riders to Philadelphia. Another group of sentries also reported sightings from Cape Henlope in Delaware and sent their express riders to Philadelphia as well, alerting forces across Delaware as they rode. Washington received notice the following day. Philadelphia, of course, was focused on the potential invasion. One delegate commented, Nothing is said or heard now except war and rumors of war. Congress voted to imprison and remove from the city several prominent city leaders who they thought would support the British occupiers. Among those taken into custody were Governor John Penn and the Chief Justice of the Colonial Government. The prisoners were taken west into backcountry, where they would be out of reach if the British occupied the city. Congress also issued calls for the militia to turn out for all of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Maryland. Late in the evening of July 31st, General Washington arrived in Philadelphia with a small escort, riding ahead of his army. He rented a room at City Tavern and consulted with members of Congress as to the defense of the city. It was at this time that he was first introduced to the Marquis de Lafayette, who would begin serving as his aide. Of course, efforts to establish defenses had been well underway for months. Because Philadelphia was not a coastal town, the only way for a ship to reach it was to travel up the Delaware River. For the previous two years, Patriots had been working to make the river impassable by the British Navy. Naval ships already threatened the city several times and had been driven back. Patriots had constructed two forts just below the city. Fort Mifflin sat on Mud Island near the Pennsylvania side of the river, near where Philadelphia Airport is located today. Across the river in New Jersey, they constructed Fort Mercer at Red Bank. Any ship passing up the river to Philadelphia would have to pass by the cannons for both of these forts. Americans were also working on another fort with artillery at Billingsport, New Jersey, a few miles downstream of Fort Mercer. In addition to the forts, the Patriots had sunk rows of chevaux de frise into the river so that no ship could simply sail up past the forts at full speed. These were essentially large pointed sticks anchored below the waterline that would puncture the hull of any ship that did not steer clear of them. There were safe paths through these traps that only the local pilots knew. Pennsylvania also maintained a fleet of longboats with mounted cannons. These boats were able to hide in the shallow waters behind the islands. They could row out and fire on ships, then row away before sailing ships could get into a position to return fire. There were a few larger ships as well, but nothing that compared to the larger British ships of the line. The Americans also planned to use fire ships, or actually fire rafts. These were wooden vessels, actually big floating piles of wood, that were built specifically for this purpose. They would be set on fire and set to float downstream. The hope was to send enough of them so that some of the burning vessels would bump into ships moving upstream and set them on fire. That was the way the British had destroyed the Spanish Armada nearly 200 years earlier. 
As the river narrowed, larger warships had limited maneuverability and were at their most vulnerable. With news of the fleet's arrival, all defenses were activated and ready to go into action. Although the British fleet had been far out to sea for over a week, the Howe brothers wanted intelligence on American activities. As I mentioned, the HMS Roebuck had been patrolling the Delaware Bay for months and actively collected the needed intelligence. The Roebuck sailed out to meet the fleet so that the ship's commander, Captain Andrew Hammond, could provide Admiral Howe and General Howe with information on the American positions. On the morning of July 30th, Hammond informed the Howe brothers that Washington's Continentals had crossed the Delaware River and were marching to Wilmington, Delaware. Now, this was not accurate. Washington was still in New Jersey, miles north of Philadelphia. Hammond did provide more accurate intelligence about the extensive Delaware River defenses that the fleet would have to defeat in order to reach Philadelphia by that route. Even so, Hammond had a plan to land troops at Newcastle, Delaware, south of Wilmington. From there, the armies could march upriver, taking out various river forts that were designed to attack ships, but not withstand a large land assault. With the forts destroyed, the fleet could move up the river, take out the small ships and destroy the Chabot de Fries, and sail into Philadelphia. Howe listened to the captain, but then rejected his plan. It seems clear that Howe, who knew about the river defenses long before he left New York City, had planned a different approach all along, and that he did not share that information with his officers. Instead of fighting their way up the Delaware River, the fleet would continue to sail south into the Chesapeake Bay. From there, the army could land in northern Maryland and march overland to Philadelphia from the south and west. Howe's plan had the benefit of being unexpected and bypassing most of the long-planned American defenses. It was, however, unexpected because the plan had a number of problems. First, it meant the British Army would have to remain board ship for at least another couple of weeks. The men were suffering miserably already from their weeks at sea. Men and animals were getting sick and dying from the miserable conditions and the quality of food available to them at sea. This situation would only get worse if the voyage continued. Sailing down to the Chesapeake also meant that the British would not land until at least the middle of August and would have a much longer march to Philadelphia than if they had just marched from New York City. The overland march meant that they would have to abandon their ships and not have naval cannons for support. The Americans would have plenty of time to call out the militia and use natural defensive barriers to attack the enemy just as was happening to Burgoyne's army in upstate New York. Even if successful, the campaign would certainly go well into September. Having any time to help Burgoyne's army in New York that fall would be completely out of the question. Despite these concerns, Howe confirmed that this would be his plan. The fleet continued on its way further south down the coast. Except they did not sail directly south. On August 1st, American surveillance at Cape May reported seeing the ships sail away from the coast again, heading east by northeast. Washington feared that Howe had sprung his trap 
he had allowed his fleet to be spotted near the Delaware Bay so that Washington had committed most of his army to move south of Philadelphia. Then the fleet was going to dash back up to New York and sail up the Hudson River to join up with Burgoyne. Washington issued orders for all armies marching south either to halt or reverse themselves and begin moving north again. Much of the Continental Army had marched as far as Germantown, just northwest of Philadelphia by this time. With word that the British might be headed back to New York, Washington ordered these men to march back to Coriel's Ferry on the Delaware River, north of Philadelphia. If the British were headed to New York, getting the Continentals across the Delaware and into New Jersey again would be critical to marching his army north to confront them. On August 10th, Washington left Germantown himself, heading north and setting up his new headquarters in Neshaminy, a small village on the Pennsylvania side of the Delaware River, near Trenton. It had been more than a week since the fleet was last seen, and no one knew what direction it was headed. That same day, locals reported seeing the fleet off the coast of Maryland, moving south. But these were unconfirmed reports, and Washington was not confident enough to act on them. Washington remained at Neshaminy, waiting for further intelligence. On August 21st, three weeks after the fleet had last been seen, Washington held a council of war with his officers to guess where the fleet might be. The consensus of his officers was that Howe was headed for Charleston, South Carolina, and that he planned to recapture the southern colonies. The next day, however, Washington received confirmation that the fleet was, in fact, in the Chesapeake Bay. With that information, Washington finally committed his army to marching south to meet the enemy south of Philadelphia. On August 23rd, he marched his army through Philadelphia, an event I discussed in more detail back in episode 141. A few days later, he received word that the British were in fact disembarking at Head of Elk, Maryland. Washington finally understood Howe's plan and could prepare his defense. But before we get to that, next week we're going to head north again as the British and Americans do battle at Fort Stanwix in upstate New York. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. I want to thank Trey Nance for his support of the show on Patreon as a member of the Alexander Hamilton Club. 
Also, thanks to Robert Onsey, who joins Roger Williams of 10crucialdays.org, and Mason Williams as a supporter at the Privy Council level. I greatly appreciate everyone who helps me cover the costs of the podcast by supporting me on Patreon. Also, thanks to Jared LeClaire, who encouraged me to create an account on Subscribestar for anyone who wants to support the show, but without dealing with Patreon. I'm also now able to take donations via PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and Pop Money. See my website for more details. Before I get to this week, I want to revisit my discussion of Jane McRae two weeks ago. Since then, I had an online discussion with Saratoga National Park Ranger Eric Schnitzer, whose opinion on this topic I greatly respect. Schnitzer believes the entire story of Jane McRae being the cause of the natives abandoning the British and as a rallying point for Americans against the British is very much overblown, almost to the point of fiction. I agree that McRae's story did seem to take on a life of its own in the 19th century. Much of the story may be viewed too much through revisionist stories rather than primary sources. Schnitzer co-wrote a book with Don Troyoni about Saratoga last year, which may be a book recommendation in the coming weeks as we get more into the Saratoga campaign. But you can find a link to it at the bottom of my blog episode about Jane McRae. This week, General Howe finally got off to his agonizingly slow start to the Philadelphia campaign. The obvious question to ask is why Howe took so long to start, and why he went on such a long and out-of-the-way route to reach Philadelphia. Certainly, after the fact, a great many officials in London had those same questions and put General Howe before a parliamentary inquiry in 1779. I'll talk about that inquiry in more detail when we get to 1779. But even that failed to elicit satisfactory answers to many of the questions. Most officers who testified, including Howe, seemed more concerned with covering their own reputations than in presenting an accurate assessment of events. In hindsight, Howe's actions kind of seem utterly foolish, but of course that is with the benefit of hindsight. Even so, Howe's movements did leave the Continentals in utter confusion, probably because they did not think Howe's movements made much sense to them either. That said, Howe's plan did not seem to be thought out very well. Perhaps it is arguable that it would take some time to get the entire army on ships, but keeping men and animals on ships for weeks before even leaving port seems to be an almost shocking indifference to the comfort, health, and even the lives of his soldiers. What would families think of soldiers who died aboard ship because Howe loaded them early and then made an extended voyage to the Chesapeake? Of course, in the 18th century, the families of common soldiers had no political power and the government had no real need to provide a satisfactory answer to the almost cavalier way the army treated their lives. And again, this was not the necessary risk of battle or even that of being on campaign. It was essentially killing soldiers for administrative convenience. Fortunately for Howe, the campaign would go better after the landing as we will see in future episodes. The campaign to take Philadelphia would be successful, even if achieving the goal ultimately proved pointless. 
As we dig deeper into the campaign in the coming weeks, you may find this week's book recommendation a helpful companion. It is called The Philadelphia Campaign, Brandywine and the Fall of Philadelphia by Thomas McGuire. This book is devoted to the British assault from leaving New York through the occupation of Philadelphia. It's an excellent book on the topic. It's about 400 pages and was first published in 2006. The author, McGuire, is a history teacher in the Philadelphia area. He has written a volume two to the book, which covers the occupation of Philadelphia as well. He's also written a number of other books that dive deeper into the battles that will make up this campaign, including Paoli and Germantown. Another one of his books, Stop the Revolution, was a recommendation of the week for episode 105. McGuire has an engaging writing style and an encyclopedic knowledge of this part of the war. There are several books with the title The Philadelphia Campaign, but I think McGuire's is the most thorough. For my online recommendation this week, I want to recommend another podcast. In this case, one that has nothing to do with the revolution. Many of my listeners have expressed frustration when they catch up to real-time in my podcast and have only one new episode to listen to each week. If you're looking for more content involving American history, you might want to try The Civil War, 1861-1865 to by Rich and Tracy Youngdahl. It's a great, highly detailed look at the American Civil War. They're past 300 episodes now, and they're not even through Gettysburg yet. So, if you love history podcasts and you're looking for more content, you may want to give The Civil War 1861-1865 to a try. You can go to their website at civilwarpodcast.org or use the link on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another... American Revolution Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.